Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute, where we seek to pursue discipleship of the heart and mind. And today, my conversation partner is Glenn Scrivener. Uh, He is an evangelist. He's a minister in the UK and in the Church of England. And he's written several books, including one that we use in our fellows program, 321. But uh, the conversation today is going to be about his newest book, The Air We Breathe, with the great subtitle of How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. Glenn, welcome to Questions That Matter. Thank you so much for having me, Randy. Yeah, well, I've been looking forward to this for a while. I really appreciated your book, and I thought, uh, this is the kind of book that I would hope that Christians would buy a dozen copies of and give them to their thoughtful non-Christian friends. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping dramatic sales happen uh, before Christmas. Because this, I'm, I'm really serious. This could be a really great Christmas present to give uh, to even the most skeptical of non-believers. That's, that's who you wrote it for, right? Am I correct on that? Absolutely correct. And in fact, one of the people I had most in mind was my father-in-law, for whom I bought uh, another book for Christmas, which was Dominion by Tom Holland. And uh, my father-in-law has historically been, he's he's kept Christian faith um, at arm's length for um, most of the last half a century. Mm. And uh, I got to know Tom Holland a little bit, um, and I got Tom Holland to write him a little note and signed it. Oh, nice. Yeah, and and Dominion has been this sort of best-selling history book all about the history of Christianity and how we are all far more Christian than we had ever dreamt. And uh, I gave it to my father-in-law, and it still sits proudly on his shelf unread. And I thought to myself, I, I want to write... I want to write a book that is like Dominion, that is uh, from a more confessionally Christian point of view, um, yes. that is shorter and punchier, and that uh, my father-in-law might read. Well, I think you've accomplished that, because I, I, I waded through all 640 pages of Tom Holland's book, and I remember at several points thinking, okay, this is brilliant, this is amazing, mm. and his arguments are really very compelling that our world is far more shaped by the Christian faith than most people even can um, imagine. But I kept thinking, I don't know who I can give this book to because it's 640 pages. And I also felt like I kept longing at the end of pretty much every chapter in his book. I wanted a final paragraph saying, and so we conclude, da-da. And, and it didn't, it just, it, you know, it just came to, each chapter came to an end. And so when I heard about your book, it's, oh, this is less than 200 pages. This is the size book I could give to people. But, um, but, but again, yours is explicitly Christian with the desire of, it, you don't want to just convince people that, yes, Western society is shaped by the Christian message. You you want people to embrace the gospel yes. and to and yes. to cling to it. Uh, that's yes. your heart as an evangelist, but you do it really well. Um, oh, thank t- you. Tell us more about what you had in mind as you wrote this, or who you had in mind. Well, there was my father-in-law. It was was, was sort of one sort of person, and uh, and I should add about uh, Tom Holland's Dominion that if you do want to um, read his six hundred and forty pages, they are brilliantly written, and uh, and mm-hmm. I think it's it's time well repaid. 
Um, and uh, he's uh, he's very kindly sort of endorsed my book. And uh, the first the first word he says about my book is punchy. Punchy, engaging, entertaining, says says Tom Hollands. But um, so he's yes, I, I, I very much uh, pitched the book as Dominion for Dummies, and I'm the dummy. But uh, <laughs> the, the person, the other the other person I wrote my book for uh, was a friend of mine who um, wrote a letter a few years ago, and one of the lines in it, she said, "Of course you realize I could never be a person of faith." And that line just haunted me and has haunted me for the years since mm. she wrote it. And because I think in her understanding, there are people of faith and there are those who have no faith. And she was mm. just, she was born without the faith gene. It's just not part of her constitution. She seems, she thinks of herself as physically and mentally incapable of having faith. And yet my friend believes in all the seven values that my book, kind of talks about she, mm -hmm. she believes in equality and compassion and consent and enlightenment and science and freedom and progress she believes in these she gives her life to these values mm -hmm. they are the pole stars that, that guide her in all that she does and none of those things are provable None of the none of these things can be demonstrated under laboratory conditions. None of them are the result of a, of a mathematical equation or a logical proof. And yet she lives by she lives she lives by faith every day, and yet she does not consider herself to be a believer. So I wrote this book for her to mm. show her a she is a believer and she lives by faith every minute of every day, and b those beliefs have not been derived from the secular worldview at all. They have come to her specifically and absolutely through the Christian revolution. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And so. I, I really, I really hope that this book. Um, I hope it excites Christians and shows us how Jesus has shaped history. Um, but I really hope that it gets into the hands of non-Christians that they start to see themselves as believers and that they realize they don't need to take a leap of faith. They are already hanging mid-air. What they really need is some ground beneath their feet, and only Jesus mm. will do. Oh, nicely said. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, I often. I want to try to word it that that faith is inevitable, not optional. Everybody is a person of faith. And and that's a very important pre-evangelistic step is to engage with people and say, you know what? We're all people of faith. The, the question is not do we have faith or don't we? It's what is our faith in? Yes. Um, let me yes. let me give another another angle uh, about your book for our listeners. You begin the very first, the beginning of your introduction by saying, an older goldfish swishes past a couple of small fry. How's the water, boys? He inquires. Water, they ask. What's water? And you then say, you know, goldfish are surrounded by water. They, they see things in the water, but they don't, they're just so surrounded by it. It's, it's their whole environment that they don't even know they're in water. And then you say, here's the contention of this book. If you're a Westerner, whether you've stepped foot inside a church or not, whether you've clapped eyes on a Bible or not, whether you consider yourself an atheist, pagan, or Jedi Knight, you are a goldfish, and Christianity is the water in which you swim. There it is. You talk about punchy. Well done. And uh, <laughs> I, I think that's that's exactly right. So. So you're an evangelist. So how, how do you communicate this? I mean, uh, we have a we have a great example <laughs> of how you communicate it in a book. How do you mm -hmm. how do you communicate this in 
in a in a one on one conversation, maybe with that uh, with that woman that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I think as an evangelist, I'm often primed to answer the words that come out of the non Christian's mouth, as though that's the most important thing to um, to focus upon. And so they mention something about suffering, and then I go into the little filing cabinet in my brain and I pull out a little theodicy folder and I download on her the relevant information about how God and suffering can fit in the world. And that would be simply to attend to the words coming out of her mouth. I'm more and more learning that what I need to do is to attend to the heart out of which that question comes, and even more to attend to the ground on which she is standing in order to ask that question. Mm. Because for any question that she asks and any objections she might have to the Christian faith, she is assuming a whole raft of transcendent values. And so in conversations, it's it's really helped me more and more if somebody has, for instance, um, a, a, a critique and a, a much needed critique to the church about child sexual abuse and the ways that the church has covered up child sexual abuse, for instance. I, I want to sit with that critique and join that critique and be on the same side as my non-Christian friend on that critique owning it and perhaps even intensifying it and saying, oh, it's even worse than you had thought. Mm, mm. But then at some point, looking at our feet, we, we, are, we are now standing shoulder to shoulder. Um, we, are now, we are now critiquing this terrible thing called child sexual abuse in, in the church. But at some point, I want to point to our feet and say, what do you have to assume in order mm. to have this critique? What are you standing on in order to make these accusations? And you have to stand on things like sex is meaningful. Mm. Bodies are like temples. Mm -hmm. Power should be used in order to serve and not to dominate. You, you have to assume all, all these sorts of things, which are the, the unique gift of Christianity to the world because the Greco-Roman world certainly did not think of bodies like temples and sex as sacred, and then certainly didn't think that power should be used in order to serve. Um, the Greco-Roman world celebrated pederasty. It celebrated mm -hmm. what it called child love. And literally, ah. they were calling pederasty child love. That's what the word means. Mm. Christians came along and called it paedophoria, which means child abuse, child yeah. destruction. Mm. Why do we have this category called child sexual abuse? And at that stage, you're having you're just having a very different conversation, I think. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. And the, yeah. even the tone of it changes, not just the content, but the tone is, yes. no, I yeah. join you in your outrage. Now, let's talk yes. about yeah. what basis we have for that outrage. Yes, yes. I want I want you to have I want you to have even more ammunition when when you are firing at the sins of the church, I want you to have more ammunition. But at some stage, I want to tell you that ammunition is Christian ammunition. Is it possible to be a scientist and a person of faith at the same time? Are Christianity and science at odds with one another? I think there are a whole lot of people in our world who think that. Well, these apologetic questions and others are going to be explored in a pre-recorded interview that we did with scientist and philosopher and mathematician and brilliant mind, Dr. John Lennox. 
It's going to be on October 21st at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And Dr. Lennox is going to examine some of the latest scientific research and theories surrounding questions of the origins of life and concepts of the mind. He will demonstrate why a Christian approach to an understanding of the universe makes the most sense. So if you're a believer who's looking for a way to explain the validity of the Christian worldview to some of your friends who are more scientifically minded or scientifically oriented, this is a really, really important event and it's free of charge, but you do need to register for it because we'd like to be able to have all those kind of connections in place. So to register for this, please go to www.cslewisinstitute.org slash cosmic dash chemistry. We sure hope you can make it for this event. Again, that's October 21st at 8 p.m. in the evening. All right, so now let, let's dig into that a little bit more. I, I think I've heard you on another, another occasion where you said the, the, the three big objections people have today are uh, sex, suffering, and science. Was that you? Do I, am, I, am I remembering correctly? That, yeah, um, I, that, that, that rings a bell from three, two, one. Yes. Okay, so, um, and uh, so it's interesting, apologetics books from 20 or 30 years ago included the question of suffering, but they probably didn't include questions about sexuality and, and maybe not about science. And um, so, so your chapter on sexuality, it was, um, uh, it, it was appropriately disturbing to read because you did, you explored further in, just like you just said about uh, child abuse uh, versus child love. Um, hmm. you, you write in your book, if the revolution of the 20th century said women can be as free as men, the Jesus revolution had said men must be as restricted as women. Hmm. And, I, and I think you're saying the Jesus revolution from the first century, yes? Yes. The sexual revolution that's really shaped your world happened 1900 years before the summer of love. Yeah. Say more about that because because you're right. People think... Okay, the sexual revolution was the 1960s. You're saying, and quite a few other people are saying, no, no, that, that's actually the second sexual revolution. The first one was the one that really shaped our belief that sexuality is sacred and that people are to be treated with respect and dignity. Right. And what we notice today is the fight, the battle between those two sensibilities, the, the first century sexual revolution and the 1960s sexual revolution, both of them have at their heart a desire to equalize the sexes. But um, as you mentioned, in the 1960s, through the pill and um, uh, other social changes, it was women were meant to be as liberated, as they said, as, as men had been. Whereas in the first century, the church was saying to men, men, you must be as restricted in your sexuality as women had always been expected to be. And I mean, the double standard in the first century was um, was not apologized for. The word, the key word in sexual morality in the Greco-Roman world was modesty, and modesty absolutely meant two different things. Whether you, you were a man or a woman, if you're a woman, it meant virginity before marriage and absolute fidelity within marriage. Um, if you were a man, modesty um, just meant not going over the top. 
um, not being too licentious to the point where you were open to the accusation of being effeminate, right? Which is mm. which is ironic, given that actually what they expected of women was total chastity. But, um, mm. but I mean, in Latin, there are 25 words for prostitutes, and there is no natural way of referring to an adult male virgin. When you say virgin in, in Latin, you are referring to a woman. It, it, it doesn't even make sense to refer to a man as a virgin. And, and those two facts about prostitution and uh, male virginity, um, th those were very, uh, very much linked. Um, the, the, the price of a visit to the brothel would cost you the price of a loaf of bread. And it, it, the sexual economy was absolutely at the heart of the moral economy of the ancient world. And slaves were fair game. And... It was just a very, very different world into which Jesus comes, Matthew 19, and, and he tightens even the, the Jewish expectations for sort of sex and marriage and um, takes the, the, the stricter of the views about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19 and basically says, look, it's one man, one woman for life. There's no getting out of it. The doors are locked. No one gets out of this thing alive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and Peter has the kind of the response that that you know red-blooded men all over the world have always had to that which is are you serious Jesus if this is if this is the case then it it would be better not to be married and it's important to remember Peter was married when he said this yeah, and we are yeah. not told how Mrs Peter took it when, when she <laughs> learnt of Peter's protestations here <laughs> Jesus says, look, the, the only other alternative is you can be a eunuch for the kingdom. And part of why he uses the phrase eunuch for the kingdom is because there, there isn't really a natural way of, of referring to male virgins. But, but he's, he's saying, look, you are to be um, absolutely chaste or married. Those are your two options. And that's kind of it. And in my research for, for the, sex, uh, the sex chapter, which is called All About Consent, I, I read two really fascinating uh, works by non-Christians. One was by the historian Kyle Harper, uh, who wrote a book called From Shame to Sin. And uh, he, he just talks about the, the utter revolution this is on values. Um, you could certainly transgress sexually in the ancient world, but it was about shame. It was about not, not living up to sort of standards and expectations societally. It was not about violations of bodies or rights. Um, and Jesus comes and, and reframes sex and sexuality in a totally different way. And then the other book that I read was by Joseph Henrik, who's an evolutionary biologist, and, and he's written a book called The Weirdest People in the World. And uh, his, his book kind of notices, he, he was the one who coined the acronym WEIRD um, to refer to Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies. They are mm. W-E-I-R-D, WEIRD. And what, what is it that's made the West weird? It's being Christianity. And as an evolutionary biologist, what's he going to point to in Christianity that's made the difference? Well, he's going to talk about the marriage and family program. Um, but but he, he, he says that control that the church managed to have over male sexuality was absolutely for the liberation of, of women and, and for the liberation of the, of the whole world. And it, it has brought about um, so much of the benefits that we see nowadays so that's the sexual revolution of the first century the sexual revolution of the, of the of the 20th century has sought to kind of undo that and be the photo negative of it and nowadays it's a fight between which sensibility will win man 
So I I, I want to jump in. Uh, you know, you know, my role here at the C.S. Lewis Institute is uh, about apologetics and evangelism to to equip and encourage people about reaching out. And I think a lot of people in the West, and you're in the UK, we're in the US, uh, similar dynamics where um, we we really feel uh, overwhelmed by the current sexual insanity, we might call it. And uh, so I think a lot of Christians are feeling like, oh, I I just don't know how I could argue for something so weird, so narrow as just one man, one woman. But but your book helps us see, no, no, that's really, really good news. Yeah, it's narrow, mm. absolutely narrow. The, the Christian view has always been considered crazy compared to the surrounding world. But that narrowness brings security and strength and, uh, and a real intimacy that is how God designed sex to be. Um, so, so I think we need to check our hearts when we, when we get into these discussions, it's not to play gotcha and not to say, do you see how hypocritical that is? But more of, we, we really want to help people. We want to serve people to say, um, this whole thing about sexuality, it's far better than what our world is saying. Um, yes. Yes. um, I I think you help us a lot with that. And, and to pull at those to pull at those threads, so Tom Holland in, in his book talks about the Me Too movement and yeah. where do we get the idea that Harvey Weinstein is such a monster? Because Harvey mm-hmm. Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein kind of taken out of a, a 21st century culture and put back into the first century culture, that's business as usual. That's everybody. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, that, that, that there's nothing um, even lamentable, there's nothing even noticeable about about Harvey Weinstein in the 21st century. The, the difference that has been made has been Jesus Christ. And just yesterday, I interviewed a, a woman whose new book is called "The Case Against the Sexual Revolution" by oh, Louise no. Perry, and she's a she's a feminist. She's a materialist feminist, is how she describes herself. And she just pulled at that same thread that Tom Holland had sort of, you know, he'd laid the trail there in in Dominion. And her her book is fascinating. And I had a wonderful conversation with her just yesterday, because l- listen, her chap her chapter headings are: sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Loveless sex is not empowering. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. People are not products. And marriage is good. Oh my goodness! This is, this is... Wait, wait a minute. Is that is she allowed to say that? <laughs> I think that's great. Oh my. Um, okay, we're going to link so, that in the show notes because uh, yeah, yeah, she's giving so I was, us I was just talking in... points. Yeah, I mean, I was just inviting her to go, come, come on home, come on home, Louise. Um, and <laughs> because she's she's just noticing, and, and when I sort of pressed her on where her beliefs come from, she's she's recognizing that so much of it has come from Christianity, and so much of what she cherishes is not sustainable on purely secular grounds. So she's yeah, and and she writes for a very left wing publication called the New Statesman um, in in the mm. UK, and mm-hmm. this is the journey that many people are on. They're just pulling at these threads, and they're they're finding that at the other end of the things that they cherish is is actually Jesus. Hmm. Oh my goodness. What. Oh, this is really great. This is uh, so empowering, I think. Well, you just said um, not sustainable, and it seems to me that's a recurring theme in your book. And so let's just shift it in the direction of science. So you have a whole section about science, and we value science. And your your argument is 
the, well, here, let me read it. Uh, you write, whatever else we learn from the examples of Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and Newton, it ought to be obvious that modern science was invented nowhere else but among devout Christians in a devoutly Christian age, drawing explicitly on Christian beliefs and practices. And so I think if you're, if you're trying to base modern science on a strictly secular naturalistic worldview, it's not sustainable, right? Right, right. Uh, I mean, and you can, you can do it from the philosophical point of view, as Alvin Plantinga does it. There's, there's, um, there's a great problem. If you believe in Darwinian evolution and naturalism, um, you, you kind of are soaring off the, the branch on which you are sitting. And his, his argument philosophically is simply, um, if our brains have evolved purely in order to survive, that does not give us great confidence in their abilities to seek truth, because truth is a very different value from survival. Um, and therefore, if Darwinian evolution is the only thing that's going on in molding the human brain, then we ought to have no confidence in the brain um, in, in its abilities to come up with a theory like Darwinian evolution. And so, so he comes at it from a sort of a, um, a philosophical point of view that's the, the, the three pounds of gray matter that, that sit between my ears, um, if they have, if they are simply a biological survival machine, then, then um, why do we trust them to have any purchase on the mysteries of the cosmos? Um, that's, that's an odd, that's an odd thing. So that's the philosophical thing. The historical thing is to then point and say, yes, and the scientific revolution erupted nowhere else other than amidst Christians at Christian universities carrying out scientific investigations for Christian reasons. And the, the reasons why science works is, I mean, Einstein had this great line about um, the, the miracle at the heart of the scientific method is the comprehensibility of the mm -hmm. universe. Why should the universe be comprehensible? By if, if, if we are simply, you know, evolved chimps, why, why should we be able to do science? And why, why should the mysteries of the cosmos be open to, um, you know, the neurons that are firing between my two ears? And the reason why that works is Christian theology. Um, so science assumes the triangulation of laws up above, minds in here, and a world out there. And the triangulation needs to be able to happen or you don't get science off the ground. Well, on page one of the Bible, that is taught that... Humans are made uniquely in God's image, and they are mm -hmm. called to have dominion over the earth. And so the, the triangulation is taught on page one of the Bible, which is why Genesis 1 is so often thought to be a science killer. It's, it's, actually, uh, it's actually a boost to science. Um, mm, it's, it's, actually, it's actually teaching the very foundations upon which science has, has been built. And it's just worth going back historically and figuring out that this is where science has come from. And therefore, looking at the last 500 years of scientific advance does not take you away from belief in the Bible. Every single experiment that, that's, that's done, every single advance in scientific knowledge is confirmation of Einstein's miracle. It's confirmation oh, yeah. that we do, in fact, live in a universe in which humans are uniquely positioned in order to be able to understand the cosmos, which yeah. is an extraordinary belief to hold if you're a secular person. But it's exactly what you expect if you believe the Bible. 
You know, again, as I'm as I'm thinking about uh, wanting to encourage people to have these conversations, I, I I'm thinking of two phrases that are are good ways to to pursue this. And so so one is the the phrase, well, what if, what if? So science believes that we can know things and we can investigate and we can come up with answers. Well, what if the reason for that stems from the fact that the way the world was created was with design and with intent and by an intelligent God rather than a cosmic accident? So I think what if is a good kind of start of a sentence. And then maybe similar to it is is the phrase, I wonder. Well, I I wonder. I, I wonder if we if we can think about this differently. I, I wonder if science is possible because there's a God who created the world in order. And and again, it's 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 not to gotcha. Do you see the hole in your argument? Let me point it out to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's more of no. I I want you to look at something differently. I wonder if we could look at it from another angle. And yes. I, I, I really do hope there are more of those conversations, which, by the way, we're, we're finding fewer and fewer examples because our world is yelling and mm. screaming at each other through bullhorns. And um, we need to have more face-to-face conversation respectfully. And, and by the way, we, we, we treat people with respect because our assumption is all people are created in the image of God. Uh, there are no ordinary people, as C.S. Lewis said it. I have to quote C.S. Lewis at least once in every episode or I'm fired. <laughs> so there, I got to quote him. Um, so do you, do you have some other, uh, I don't know, phrases or ways that are good ways to, to interact with uh, non-believers? I think on, yeah, on the, on the science thing, I think telling stories, like throughout all my evangelism, I, I think um, stories are not just the, 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 the sweet sugar that helps the bitter pill of truth go down. I think stories actually immerse people in a mm-hmm. whole new way of seeing. And so one story I tell about science is, well, imagine the scene. You're in the laboratory. You're watching Betty, the botanist. And um, she uh, goes over to, to Gareth, the lab assistant, and she says, Gareth, thank you so much uh, yesterday for giving me that botanical specimen. I've run all sorts of tests on it. I've discovered there's pharmacological properties that are going to help us in the fight against Alzheimer's. I've mapped the genome of this botanical specimen, which is a first um, for this particular species. And uh, I just can't thank you enough for giving me the botanical specimen. And Gareth says, Betty, yesterday was February the 14th. It was a long-stemmed rose, Betty. <laughs> do you understand what I gave to you? And the question is, does Betty understand the rose? And uh, on one level, does she understand the rose? She understands the rose better than anyone else on planet Earth. On the other hand, does she understand the rose? No. Betty is a moron. Right? <laughs> Be- Betty <laughs> Betty just doesn't get it. And, and she is even more of a moron if she tells Gareth, it can't be a romantic gesture because it's a botanical specimen. Oh, that, good. D- that doesn't work, Betty. That doesn't work. Mm. It, it can both be a botanical, botanical specimen and a mm. romantic gesture, but to, to understand that romantic side of things will require more from you than just running a spectral analysis. Mm. It will require you to understand the rose more fully, more richly, and then you, then you say, what if this world is like that rose. 
What if it's being given to us as a love gift? Sure, go into the laboratory. Study all you can. But do not think that by studying the world scientifically, you have exhausted the meaning of the rose, unless you want to be like Betty. You don't want to be like Betty, do you? You know, so you kind of, you immerse them in the story and, and, then, and then say, you know, who are you in this story? What is spiritual warfare? And does it really matter or does it really affect my everyday life? You know, C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to the Screwtape Letters, said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Isn't that brilliant? Well, we're doing an event about spiritual warfare with our good friend and C.S. Lewis scholar, Jerry Root. Dr. Jerry Root was professor for many years at Wheaton. Now he's professor emeritus at Wheaton College. And if you were fortunate enough to be at Wheaton and study under Jerry Root, you know that he is brilliant and a delight to listen to. One story after another and brilliant insight. And he's doing a special event for us. Uh, about spiritual warfare. This one is an in-person event. So if you're in the Washington DC area, if you're interested in learning more about spiritual warfare, if you follow Jerry Root, or if you're a Wheaton alumni, this event is for you. It's on Friday, September 23rd at 7.30 p.m. It's gonna be at Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church in Annandale. There is a cost for this event, it's $10 per person. And there will be a question and answer period following uh, Dr. Root's presentation. We'll also have light refreshments, and uh, we really hope you can make it. We're really eager to have Jerry Root with us once again. Uh, please register for the event, www.cslewisinstitute.org forward slash spiritual dash warfare dash event. <laughs> Um, don't let the devil discourage you from from registering just because this URL is so terribly long. Uh, if you go to our website, I don't think it'll be hard to find the Spiritual Warfare event. Please register. Once again, that's September 23rd at 7.30 p.m. I love it. Well done. And, and, um, and I want to underline, you said before you told the story, you said stories are not just the, the sweet sugar to help people swallow a, a bitter pill. No. Um, mm. And stories are not, they're not manipulative. They're, and, and, and they're more than, well, Jesus told stories, so we should tell stories. Well, yes. <laughs> but right, right. We tell right, stories right. because, um, and not only is that the way God has revealed himself, I mean, look at the Bible. It's, it's a one long story with millions of subplot stories, but we, we are story creatures. Our lives are a narrative. We fit into time and we have a beginning and an end of this earthly life. It's a story. And so we're not, we're not using it as a manipulative sales technique. We're doing it because that resonates with, with who we are as people, uh, eternal yes. creatures uh, captured for a moment in time. So, yeah, we yes. need to develop that skill of telling stories. Do you have another one for us? <laughs> Where we need to well, wrap up. Maybe that story about Betty is a good one to finish on, but something tells me you uh, might have another one. Oh, I've got, I've, got, I've got loads that are kind of like that. And, and um, 
you know, on, on sex or sexuality, you, you you can talk about you know having your neighbor over and and um, you know they're they're a Buddhist and um, you know they they don't want to have the, the the hamburger that you've just offered them from from your barbecue. You you don't you don't think of them as being completely judgmental. And you know you don't you don't think of them as a carnivore phobe, a carnophobe. You d- you don't think of them as a meat bigot. How dare you you know how dare you not celebrate my meat eating? Um, nor do you think that the that the Buddhist kind of has meat at the heart of their worldview. But you probably you probably sense that there's a, a richer vision for all of life that has implications when it comes to barbecues. And in exactly the same way, Christians and their their views of sexuality. Um, it's not the centerpiece of what we think about reality at all, but we have a, a, a much richer vision, um, which if you want to learn uh, about what that is, you you can, but you can't just call us bigots or phobes um, for thinking about sexuality a little bit differently, unless you want to call a, a Buddhist a bigot or a phobe for, for not eating meat. And and so the, one of the things that stories do is they take the they take the heat out of the situation by immersing you in a different world, just seeing mm, the same thing right. again from a different perspective. And they yeah. take somebody out of their ego as well. Because if I'm just talking to you about your view of science, for instance, you're going to be defensive. Of course you're going to be defensive. You sure. love science, whatever. But if I talk to you about Betty, you don't care about Betty. She's somebody else. Now you've got a bird's eye view. Now you're mm-hmm. taken out of yourself. Now ego mm-hmm. is not part of the conversation. And self-justification is not your goal. Nathan does it to David, doesn't he? You know, he says, oh, you know, what yeah, about right. what about the man who, you know, takes the ewe lamb and rips it out of the hands of his neighbor? As soon as David recognizes his behavior in somebody else, he's able to see it. And that's as well what stories are able to do. People can get a God's eye view because we're, we're these narrators who are viewing the story from the outside. And that gives us a very different perspective. Yeah. And if I can quote Lewis again, it's uh, sneaking past watchful dragons uh, right. when we tell stories or we use illustrations. Well, we need to wrap this up, but let me let me read one more uh, little part from your book, and we'll we'll try to draw it to a close here. You you say Western society has splintered into ever narrower identity groupings with less and less shared narrative to bind us together. When conflict arises, we have fewer social and spiritual resources to help us forgive and reconcile. The secular river is running dry. And uh, that's the world that God has placed us in. And it's a great opportunity for us to say it, it is running dry. It isn't working. We're at each other's throats. What if there's another way to look at reality? And you've, you've really helped us, I think, see that. Any last thoughts on your on your part about uh, the air we breathe? Well, yes, the secular river has run dry, so it's the the book does not end on on, the, on a sort of a downer and, and saying, "Oh well, it was a good run." <laughs> um, <laughs> um, true, and that quote, by so, the way, is more in the middle rather than toward the end. So please, yeah, no, no, but but but. Um, I think quite often that is the way that people sort of phrase it. It's it's a cut flowers kind of culture, and mm-hmm. um, we we have lived off the the bloom of the past, and now we're all perishing. Um, but I, I guess two two things I kind of say at the end. Um, well, three things really. We need to look back, look around, and look up. And we we look back on two thousand years of history, and it is not the case that uh, Christianity um, was 
flourishing up until 1963, and then it took a nosedive, and now things aren't the way they were in the 1950s. That, that is no, that is not Christian history. Christian history ebbs and flows. The tide comes in, the tide goes out, and the tide is out at the moment, but tides go out and tides come in. And looking back over history, you see, I, I was greatly encouraged to see just how terrible, what a terrible state the church was in at, at many junctions. Mm. Um, bishops mm. in medieval periods just kind of like getting everybody to come to church on a Sunday because nobody had been in church. And then it's a total zoo when they come and the bishop ordering people not to come to church next Sunday because they just couldn't behave themselves. And the, the church has been in many, many, many dire straits, as G.K. Chesterton says. You know, the church has gone to the dogs many times, but every time the dog has died, not the church. <laughs> you know, we and we follow a man who knows the way out of the grave. So, um, so look back, I think, look around, and global Christianity is an extraordinary success story. And, you know, if it's if if there aren't more Christians in China than there are in the US today, that will be true in the next couple of years. Right. (laughs) More Christians in China today than there are in the US. Mm -hmm. Um, And and Christianity is exploding in sub-Saharan Africa and South America and parts of Asia. And and, um, look around. Um, Christianity is still the most dominant, most influential, most disruptive, most successful way of viewing the world that this world has ever seen and and it continues to grow and then just look up you know jesus is not concerned for the success of his movement like even even as he speaks you know just a few months away from god forsaken execution he says that the gates of hell won't prevail prevail against the church i mean Gates are static. Gates don't advance. The church advances and the church plunders Satan's kingdom and it has been plundering Satan's kingdom for 2,000 years and Jesus is not anxious about whether his movement will succeed. It is succeeding and we're a part of it. So I, I hope the final the final word is uh, a word of hope that just as yeast works through a batch of dough, just as the mustard seed grows into the largest tree in the garden, so large that even the birds end up perching in its branches. Yeah. Therefore, this is the movement that we're part of. Oh, thanks so much. That's a great spot for us to conclude. We need to look back. We need to look around. We need to look up. Glenn Scrivener, it's been great to be with you. Thanks for the time. Thank you for the work you did on that great book. And we're going to link information about it in our show notes. Uh, To our listeners, once again, we hope this podcast has uh, equipped you for reaching out with the good news. And we hope that everything that we do here at the Institute helps you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Thanks. We here at the C.S. Lewis Institute are delighted to tell you um, our newly redesigned website has been given an award. We're an early winner of the Gold Award by the .com Awards uh, Agency. Uh, They uh, hand out very few of these awards for excellence in web creativity and digital communication. This year's competition was had entrants from 2,500 entries or, or even more, designers, developers, content producers. I mean, it was it was amazing, and we are so very grateful that we were given this award. Uh, we thank you uh, for your prayers for this ministry and support for our ministry. This uh, redesign 
took a lot of time, a lot of work, and a lot of money. And we would love for you to be joining us as a financial supporter of our ministry for paying for these kinds of things, and also the great materials that we produce and the events that we do. So please prayerfully consider, if you're not a regular monthly supporter of our ministry, we'd love to have you as a partner in that way. Um, or if it's only uh, uh, occasional gifts, we take those too. But we really need uh, your help. So we hope that you can go to our website, cslewisinstitute.org forward slash give. Thanks.